Hello, everyone. Uh, in the second year, in the sixth episode of the Hewlett Packard Labs podcast from Research to Reality, I have a great honor and pleasure uh, to host Pete Beckman, uh, the senior uh, research scientist in uh, Argo National Lab. Hello, Pete. Hello. Uh, thanks a lot for the opportunity. Uh, it's great uh, uh, to you know chat about stuff. Uh, looking forward to the future. I'm I'm really happy about this. So tell us a little bit uh, uh, about yourself. Uh, what does it mean, a uh, senior computer uh, scientist? So uh, um, I work uh, on hard computer science problems at the lab. Uh, I'm also the director of NACE, which is the Northwestern University and Argonne Institute of Science and Engineering. Uh, and uh, we are trying to solve uh, for the Department of Energy, the hopefully the hardest computational science and computer science problems there are. And what I always ask distinguished people like you is how did they get here? Did you just uh, one day uh, was born and you became scientist? So what was your trajectory to get here? Yeah, so um, uh, both of my parents are, are immigrants and uh, uh, my dad is German, uh, my mother's Dutch. And you know, from the earliest time I had uh, chemistry sets and microscopes and you know, the whole deal, right? And uh, when I was in high school, I got my first uh, computer, a TRS-80, you, know, <laughs> you know, with the Z80 uh, CPU. And from there, I just kept, uh, that, was the, that was the one science that was just so exciting for me. So I was up late saving programs onto a cassette tape, you know, the, yep. the whole thing. So, uh, so that's how I got started in science and then got my PhD at Indiana University and uh, went to Los Alamos and now here at Argonne. You mentioned your parents. Uh, it appears to me that high performance computing are being still programmed like your grandma used to program it. Can you reflect on that? Yeah, you know, when we look back on how uh, Seymour Cray and, and the first uh, uh, people wrote programs, we haven't changed a lot. Uh, and in fact, uh, in supercomputing, we seem particularly stiff. Uh, you know, while the cloud computing has erupted with new ideas and new space, uh, our computers for how we do supercomputing has is, is been pretty, pretty static, bigger, much bigger. But, uh, but the programming, the way we approach it has been uh, pretty uh, constant. So you haven't just sat back and complained about the, that fact, you, you actually decided to make a change. So you coined the term and you're starting addressing uh, something called fluid HPC. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, so, um, you know, actually years ago, uh, when we had the machines like the uh, T3D and the uh, CM5, the thinking machines machine, mm -hmm. uh, there were certain capabilities built in these machines that, were, uh, that made them very easy for scientists to use. And as we've grown toward exascale, some of those things that made them easy and flexible, we lost somewhere along the way. And so some of my colleagues and I sat down thinking, what, what are the key things that we need to restore kind of a cloud computing way to have flexible uh, computing on these, on these systems? And so we really boiled it down to three things. So if we could one, first fix our authentication system so it's token-based. You know, all of the new services, you go to Google, Facebook, anywhere, it's token-based, right? You can log in to any using another. 
And that would make it possible for us to do continuous integration or remote job submission. And it would just make life much easier. So, you know, having token-based authentic, that's a software thing. The second thing is a hardware thing. And that is uh, that the control plane uh, needs to be separate for these very high performance networks. Uh, this idea that we should be able to virtualize the network, kind of like software defined networks are doing in the cloud space. We need that capability in supercomputing. It would really make it so much easier and uh, possible to dynamically move things around, to dynamically move jobs, partitions, uh, applications. And then the third thing that we need is really something that you know we have on our iPhone, right? Which is uh, the ability to uh, quickly uh, uh, reinitialize the entire platform, right? So a node, even if it has NVRAM, just by changing some security keys should be completely wiped and clean. And we do that with changing the security keys and being able to wipe them on all of our devices. And you know, ARM and others have trust zone uh, you know, there are lots of technologies making this possible. So if we address those things, we get a, a much more fluid, uh, dynamic, cloud-like supercomputer. And do you believe that this fluid HPC could eventually lead to the third type of uh, programming model? We used to have uh, MPI and uh, multi-threading. And do you think the new thing is coming, enabled by fluid HPC? Yeah, you know, we have a very as I said, a very static view of the world. You put something in a job queue and you go to lunch or maybe you take a couple days of vacation because nothing's going to happen until it runs. And, and this idea that we could move things around, that we dynamically change jobs, that we grow and shrink them. Right now, we're still locked into picking a job size and that being the same job size for the next you know, 38 hours, right? Or, or seven days if it's a, if it's a hero run. Uh, so all of that sort of flexibility, which would allow dynamic programming models uh, could be enabled if we you know, just it's a couple small things that we could change up how we design these supercomputers. Where else do you think, beside these three points that you brought up for fluid HPC, do you think that there is a need for innovation in order to come up with more programmable high performance computing? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, the, the world is very quickly adding new kinds of computing, you know, neuromorphic, uh, uh, low power, we have new kinds of GPUs. And uh, we don't have a, a, a CubeSat view of the world yet, you know, so CubeSat was, you know, the NASA effort to define these, you know, 10 inch, uh, 10 centimeter cubes that they would launch Right. Mm -hmm. What we need in supercomputing is a way to rapidly add new technologies. So if there's a small FPGA or a neuromorphic or if we define those interfaces carefully, then then we could be adding and, and changing and exploring in a much more quick, fast uh, method. And, you know, the networking advancements at HP and Cray and others are examples of that. We just need that socket and the control plane, and we should be able to add those things. It's interesting that you keep on drawing parallels between cloud and HPC. Cloud is well known for the new DevOps model, which is pretty aggressive, dynamic. Do you think that by doing everything you said, we can adopt some of that DevOps model for HPC? Oh yeah, you know, that's a very, uh, very clear and, and important point uh, that you made, which is that 
you know, we've been, uh, you know, stuck in how our, our, our parents and our grandparents programmed supercomputers, right? Where you sit at a, at a terminal and you, uh, you know, now it's a, it's a nice window, but it's a command line and we compile and we recompile and then we submit. Uh, and with token-based authentication, as an example, we should have continuous build where somebody checks something into GitHub and it automatically submits a job. And the ECP is, is getting very close to that, but it has been very difficult, primarily because our security models and our security systems built in these platforms is still old and uh, doesn't embrace these new models. So that cloud DevOps model uh, where you're continually making improvements and benchmarking, right? So did the code get better? It should not be a human that has to go figure this out. When you check a piece of code in, the, the code system itself should say, no, that slowed things down, <laughs> right? And, uh, and that should all be automated. So everything that you spoke about in, in some way is also enabled by virtualization, which was embraced by cloud. Um, and uh, even more recently, it's containers. So if container is an answer for HPC, what is then the question? Yeah, containers become very close to giving us what we need. Um, not enough, but very close. And you know, one of the things, one of the reasons people have love containers is it solves the software dependency problems. So supercomputers, again, have, have suffered from this slowness where the, the machine operators feel like they need to provide one uniform programming environment, and then all the programmers, all the scientists have to come and learn that programming environment. But we're evolving in science way faster than that. They, they just can't keep up. So what containers have delivered to science is the ability for a small team to go off, create their entire software stack, and then say, hey, I've got all my dependencies worked out. Just run this, right? Now, if we focus back, and you've mentioned it uh, multiple times on security, the HPC have this benefit of these huge uh, infrastructures that are usually you know, secluded, protected, physically, et cetera. Is it helping, uh, enabling, or even slow down the security evolution? Yeah, you know, the... Um, the high performance computing community is excels and has so many uh, amazing smart people. It's been fun to work in this, uh, uh, in this community. Um, but one of the things that we sometimes suffer from is we think that our needs and our environment and our computing is special. Now it is special with respect to scale. It's absolutely, we have the biggest problems, the biggest data sets uh, that we need the most uh, ops per second. But a question that we need to ask ourselves, is it really special with respect to security? Uh, you know, about more than 10 years ago, when, when Amazon first started EC2, uh, um, Charlie Catlett and I went to Amazon headquarters and we sat down and we were really excited, like, well, could we like use this for supercomputing? This is, this is crazy, you know, what do we do? And of course, being supercomputer people, we came with that sort of, notion, well, but we have special security issues. And, and Amazon made it very clear, look, you know, if we make one mistake, we're going to be on headlines in the New York Times, right? We have a whole set of people who are working hard on the security piece. 
And so I think the cloud folks, we have to give them credit. They've advanced security quite a bit. And the high performance computing community in this case should be a follower. We should be following their best practices. We have the scale problem, but I don't think that our security problem is actually unique. Uh, they have enclaves, they have uh, uh, the need to, to track large uh, um, data movement uh, and to know who did it and why and where that data is going. And so we, we, could, uh, we could benefit from a partnership there, I believe. Great insights, uh, really great insights. Next to security sits privacy and the whole world is grappling with it. HPC was also special in a way that was secluded, but as HPC is more broadly adopted, the privacy will become an issue sooner rather than later. So what is your take on that? Yeah, that's, a, um, that's one that our community has not spent a lot of time thinking about. You know, we think about data sets that have 20 year lifespans on tape drives, right? And we are, or longer. And the notion that we should account and understand for the data we get and what to do with that and who might, not, not from a security perspective, but you know, where do we want to throw that data away when we're done? You know, we, we want to use it and then it's private. So we, we want to discard it in a proper way. And those topics uh, are coming up more and more as we look at data that comes from distributed networks. So that these are the things that have like from projects that I've worked on cameras in the city or uh, other data that looks at understanding, you know, movement, uh, traffic, uh, animals, all of these things have new ways for us to decide we need, how do we handle privacy? And now there are, as I said, there are great advances in the computing platform themselves, trust zone and other things, but there's a whole structure around that, that high performance computing needs to explore and adopt. Another quite related topic is uh, configuration uh, and, and specialization of the components. HPC People are usually experts and they almost have an addiction that they want by hand to tune everything and tweak. Can we somehow get rid of that addiction, especially for operating systems, programming environments? Oh, I, I would, I, you know, I, that's, a, that's a project I want to work on <laughs> because I, I so want to get rid of this, uh, this uh, hand tweaking of a hundred different knobs uh, to tune things. Uh, you know, I'm sure you're all familiar, you know, you're familiar with these papers that grad students often do where they, they run, you know, with so many threads and so many MPI ranks and they run every combination and they plot it and they show the best one. And, you know, my response to that is a human should never do that, right? Yep. There should be a computer that's doing that for us, right? So I think that the big change is we will have to redesign our software stack to expose all of those control surfaces. And once they're exposed, then we could design AI that would automatically find the optimal values and the sweet spots for any workload, rather than a human tuning each workload and trying it out with different cache sizes and different memory sizes and you know, different uh, how we promote, in, even in the compiler, right? How we promote uh, 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 loops. Uh, all of that stuff has to be done ultimately by, by a computer. Leading towards autonomous self-configuring systems. Oh uh, yeah, and that's a, you know, as a, you know, 
as a ECP, as an exascale community, as a high performance computing community, we want to embrace autonomy, right? And, uh, and have, let the computer work on computer problems. Yeah. Let us think about harder problems. We have largely uh, looked at the technology problems, but there's also the business underpinning to all of this. Um, cloud has gone the path of one model and HPC also retained the traditional model there. So do you think these two will ever converge? Yeah, that is, that is a hard one because uh, we definitely feel like they should and we want them to, but there have been a lot of cultural and, and uh, business impediments. Uh, you know, we, we want to be able to provide that sort of infinite scaling uh, and yet let little science, you know, scientists who have small problems, uh, uh, that long, there's a long tail of science, you know, in, in our super large computers, we focus on those 20 apps that are the biggest, but there's a big tail and, uh, and that large tail might actually exceed in cycles, the, the, the supercomputer cycles. So finding the business models that let those scientists show up and, uh, and rapidly get their problem going is, I think it would be a tremendous benefit for all the universities and, and uh, uh, colleges and small businesses, right? To be able to get that kind of computation on demand. I'm really glad you brought up the cultural angle because business influences culture and culture influences uh, business. And there appears to be completely different culture of these two communities. We have very entrepreneurial uh, cloud community and we have very traditional rigorous scientific um, HPC and engineering community. Do you think that there will be convergence at that level? There have been, uh, there have been times when we have people who can bridge those. I think that's one of the key parts, right? When you have someone who's comes from the technical world and goes into the business world or comes from the business world and comes back to the technical world. And I think that's how this really gets done effectively is when, uh, you know, I've seen several startups uh, who are essentially selling MPI cycles on the cloud, right? And for a lot of small classes and universities, this is perfect. I mean, if you think about how easy it is, if you're a professor and you wanna teach parallel programming and you just tell your students, go, get an account here and you can run, you know, 128 way MPI jobs and run your class assignments. That's perfect, right? And why that can't scale up to thousands of cores, uh, there, you know, it should be able to. In cloud, uh, we have geographically distributed systems around the world within providers. It still appears that every supercomputer is an island. Do you think that impact of the cloud could lead towards some sort of federation of these, especially now that we'll have very soon exascale computers? Yeah, that's been a challenge for us. Um, and But part of that challenge is actually a real technical problem. And that is that uh, the data doesn't move very much. So once you have petabytes of data, it stays inside the machine room. And so the, for us, for, for very large, again, the only real unique thing we have is scale. So for, for us, that scale problem is that the computing and the data really have to always be co-located. Uh, and so that means that um, a science community is making a 10 year investment in a site. 
Uh, it's not that they, oh, well, next year it's a little bit cheaper over here. I'll run it, you know, in, uh, in Iceland because they have cheap power right now. Uh, because that data movement doesn't happen, those petabytes and petabytes of data. And, uh, and so I think there, we're, that we match that, that distributed federated model, but it's on a much slower evolutionary scale because of the, the inertia that large data has. So it's on these 10 year cycles. Uh, and then new supercomputer centers like Texas, uh, uh, like TAC is a good example of a computer center that gets you know, created and then gets that inertia and now has one of the most capable, capable machines. Cloud has been riding on the popularity of AI and for good reasons. And, and we've seen that HPC community has been embracing it. Do you think that AI might be a good reason for substantial changes in uh, HPC community development models, et cetera? Oh yeah, you know, that's a, uh, that will radically change how we, both how we write code, but the culture around how we write code. So um, uh, one of the biggest, prom most promising areas are what people sometimes refer to as surrogate functions, right? So, you know, having a function that normally you compute uh, um, using your sets of equations, right? And doing a simulation. Um, once you've learned that function in an AI sense, what you've trained on it and learned it, you could replace it with just AI. The, the key part here though, is that to do that learning, you need the data. So with the big change that will happen in our computing community is that these learned functions and data sets will be things that we share. Right now, the only thing we share is code on GitHub, right? You know, very, very rarely are we sharing the speed and the simulation and the input and output data such that other people could train a better surrogate model, right, for that function. So we'll have to evolve to have code repositories that are data execution repositories for how code uh, ran and how you might optimize it. Jeffrey Fox has a, has a project in this space and I'm sure others do as well. Uh, and it will change our culture to share data uh, on how these things run uh, uh, for AI enabled code. But there's also difference in, in how these algorithms work. HPC is well known for very precise, synchronous, coordinated algorithms, whereas AI is completely unpredictable. There's this convergence that can take shorter or longer. So how do you see these two sitting side by side? Yeah, you know, our, our uh, largest machines are always optimized for very tightly synchronized uh, computing, right? So that come from things that evolve a state that requires the entire machine. And you're absolutely right, you know, many types of AI uh, um, don't need that tightly coupled, synchronized, uh, global lockstep model and uh, of bulk synchronous programming. And so I think that, uh, once again, changing the system software to allow for dynamic expansion and contraction and being able to replace even whole subroutines on the fly with the learned AI version, uh, that has to be our future. And so you already brought up one example how you can replace pieces using AI. Is that the model where AI will sit beside HPC, observe how it's acting, and then 
uh, trigger some events? Do you see the opposite way as well, where HPC can help AI? Yeah, and and you know that's one. This the surrogate model is one very promising technique. There are actually you know many techniques in respect to how AI can be done. Like for example, Rick Stevens' project with cancer uh, candle uh, um, is just looking at at the data, right, and understanding. Okay, how do we uh, by looking at the data, what can we determine? And that's a just a, a begin, you know, an AI problem from the very beginning. It's a data-driven problem. Uh, but what it means for us is that the software stacks that enable AI, you know, TensorFlow, uh, PyTorch, all of these cloud-based software stacks have to be tuned and reconstructed in an HPC environment. We need to be able to call and run and train on data that comes from these cloud providers. We're, you know, the high performance computing community is not going to own a different version of PyTorch or TensorFlow. There's way too much investment from, you know, large companies on these platforms, right? These software uh, platforms. So what the HPC community will need to do is to use those and improve them and modify them for high performance computing environments. So for me, naive HPC programmer, how should I think about it? You have these tight loops that execute and then you have AI. Does AI invoke HPC or HPC invoke AI? Or are they ever going to be tightly coupled or they're going to be loose? And in these loops, who invokes whom and where, where does each live? Yeah, well, one, um, one uh, uh, sort of mischievous way to think about this is uh, um, if you were running your code and someone replaced a subroutine with something that ran 5,000 times faster but gave you the same answers, would you even have to know, <laughs> right? And, uh, and who would tell you? Right? So if we really think about you know, AI in the same way that we think of autonomous cars, I, if, I, if there's an car, autonomous car next to me, uh, do I know? Do I know that the driver has his hands on the steering wheel or not? Um, and in HPC space, if a function was automatically learned by the system and replaced with an AI version that gave you the same results, but thousands of times faster, uh, would they tell you, <laughs> right? Uh, so yes, these things will be living side by side. And, uh, and I think that there's an opportunity here to do it automatically, to, to automatically change these pieces of code. I really like your answer, especially this thread of uh, automatic uh, behavior. Now, at the programming level, you can do many things and it can be completely transparent to users, but eventually it will run on some hardware. At the moment, that hardware is different for HPC and for AI or deep learning specifically. Do you think the hardware will evolve? They will merge and adopt and there'll be some convergence of the hardware? Yeah. Um, now, right now, of course, it, it turned out very fortunately that many of the AI workloads uh, look very matrix-like, right? And so uh, um, having things that do you know, floating point and uh, uh, fast matrix ops is a good thing. But I think we're coming to the point for AI where we realize that if we really design certain operations to use the minimal silicon and the minimal power in order to give us a precise answer, we wouldn't necessarily do large floating point, right? And so 
I think it's very reasonable to assume that our future platforms will be a mix of, of standard floating point to do PDEs and, mm -hmm. and other kinds of computation and AI accelerators that are particularly good at certain kinds of deep neural nets or inference or, or even new techniques that we don't know yet. Uh, but they'll be optimized so that the power and, uh, and transistor count uh, are, are minimal. HPC community is focusing on certain verticals and then there's a lot of other verticals, uh, oil and gas, financial, et cetera. Where do you think this converged HPC AI will be most useful and where it may not be as important? Or do you think it will be universally important? Yeah, so um, it, when it comes to you know, replacing function calls with learned functions, I think that's universal. Uh, you know, every, you, you, as I said, it might be fun to uh, imagine that you don't even know that it happened, right? <laughs> um, except that you, you get a better result or a more accurate result. But when it comes to the uptake of AI, I think it will be specifically um, uh, most advantageous to those industries that have an abundance of data. Uh, so, you know, the oil and gas industry is perfect in this space. Uh, so is the medical uh, community where they have lots of data and they have fewer, especially in medical, they have fewer clear models of, uh, um, you know, that, that are formulas that define the outcomes, right? So in, the, in a pure physics model, we can write down the formulas that define the universe. When it comes to, uh, you know, biotech, that's harder, right? Uh, uh, we don't have a, a set of simple equations that uh, describe a human. Uh, and so it's mostly a data problem. And this is where those techniques will really be most beneficial. I really like, in a positive sense, your obsession with data, because it really all starts with data. Data is really what is most important in most cases. Uh, and that data is usually generated at the edge. You and I have been talking in the past about doing compute at the edge. Why is it important? Why can't we just collect the data, move it to the cloud, and do processing there? Yeah, um, it, it is a, a sort of a sudden discovery about edge computing. And, and in many ways, it's uh, fun to see that reinvention of what we already did years ago. Uh, and I have a project uh, I'm working on for the National Science Foundation called SAGE, which is specifically to build uh, edge computing for distributed instruments. And, and to answer your question specifically, uh, it's because we always have more instrumentation at the edge than we can possibly send back the data or the latency is a problem or there's a privacy concern or even that you like the resilience nature of being able to compute at the edge gives you more resilience than sending it all back to the cloud. But, you know, perfect example of this are, you know, the hyperspectral cameras and LIDAR and radar and high definition cameras we can't possibly stream all of that data to the cloud to be analyzed. We can analyze it right there at the edge. And of course, given the fantastic advancements in GPUs, uh, there, are, there are wonderful sets of hardware that we can run at the edge and create essentially software-defined sensors, right? Excellent, excellent answer. So you covered largely what exists today by Providing this AI at edge specifically, do you think we can open up completely new fields of opportunities for HPC? 
Yeah, you know, right now HPC has been defined as, um, you know, you move the data to the data center and then you attack it, work on it, you know, write code for it. Uh, and then maybe, maybe you use that output to, to uh, inform your experiment. But what's coming the, is that the edge to cloud, the edge to HPC is dynamically linked in real time. So that what's happening at the edge, distributed at the edge and computing informs a model that's running in the supercomputing, a digital twin or model-driven execution. And that then informs the edge as to what data to be collected. And so, uh, you know, environmental scientists, we're working with scientists in the NEON project, that's the, uh, um, uh, the uh, ecological observatory that's run by the NSF for the, for the nation. And what they would love to be able to do is based on simulations, change the sampling that's happening at the edge. Right. So when you know something, a phenomenon that's really interesting is happening, you've detected some interesting phenomenon based on projections, based on simulations on an HPC or a cloud that you could inform the edge to change its, its dynamics, to change how it's processing data. And this new link between edge and HPC, edge and cloud, is a new way to program uh, this digital continuum. Uh, and uh, right now, uh, we're, we're working on it, but I think uh, we have a long way to go. It's a big open field right now. Very interesting. In terms of implementation, how would you do that? Could you just grab a node from cloud, make it thin and run it at the edge or you need a different architecture? Yeah, so um, uh, in many ways, it's a small version of what we have at HPC, right? So we want to run um, AI models at the edge there's sometimes is a little bit of training that can happen at the edge, but much of the training has to happen in the cloud, but then inference happens at the edge. And so these are really very similar. And if you look at NVIDIA's uh, product line as an example, they've taken uh, those GPUs that are massive HPC GPUs and they've made small edge versions of them, but they're the same cores, right? Just fewer and in a lightweight, uh, low power package, but you can get 512, you know, cores that run on tens of watts out at the edge. And of course, in the data center, you could have, you know, your megawatt, right? Yeah. Another term that you like to use, uh, and you have been visiting it uh, throughout this discussion is software defined. So with your colleagues, you work on software defined sensors at the edge. Can you tell us a little bit more uh, why they are important and how we can benefit from them? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a way to think about the fact that with data, we can recreate and define what we're detecting on the fly. So a good example is uh, what we're doing uh, um, with projects in California um, with the HP REN project and uh, a project in Oregon uh, that is called Alert Wildfire. So they have cameras, they've already put all of these cameras up, they're already on poles, uh, on towers. And if we move a GPU server into the base of that tower in their little instrument hut, we can run and stream images from the camera 
to an AI algorithm that is looking for smoke. Now it has to determine it's a it's a you know uh, a deep uh, uh, learning model and, and uh, current R and D from students and others suggest that maybe you need an LSTM to to get this to work. But this is the cutting edge of AI, and it means that we have a software defined sensor. We didn't put up a smoke sensor, we put up a camera, right? So what did we do? We wrote software to detect wildfires. Now that is still ongoing work, it's not done, but it's an example of writing a piece of software that gives you a new capability, whether it's clouds and photovoltaics, being able to determine when clouds are gonna cause shadows on photovoltaics and change solar power, uh, whether it's detecting uh, cows or pedestrians or cars or airplanes. Uh, um, this is all possible by writing a piece of code that lives in the edge. Uh, very interesting. So um, you have been um, talking primarily about the technology, but there are usually other reasons why technology is successful or not. Uh, some are business models, then there's legislation. What do you think will be enabler or disabler in terms of adoption, more aggressive adoption of AI at edge? Yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating uh, um, to think about. So one of those issues I think is, is privacy. Uh, so if you look at um, our work that we've done in the, in, uh, the city of Chicago, we, um, Charlie Catlett led an effort to, to really work with the city on setting up a privacy policy. And the idea that, that uh, you know, we weren't going to stream data 24-7 uh, of what's happening on the street, but rather look for things like put counting pedestrians or counting cars that can be used in computations and then throw the rest of the data away. And so I think there will be an interesting uh, business reason why edge computing uh, will matter. And it has to do with uh, privacy and even regulation. Of course, the the more you know the the clearest reason is that you gain an advantage. You're using all of the data. So if you think about uh, even this camera that we're looking at right now, um, it probably has many more you know as as uh, 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 five ten megapixel right, and it has much more data capability than we would want to stream over an LTE connection, right? If we were doing this over cell phones. Uh, we always end up downsampling that data. And so the I, edge computing has a very uh, good uh, financial benefit and computing benefit because we save money on trying, we can't possibly send all of that data to the cloud. So computing at the edge makes sort of financial and, and uh, science sense as well. Um, AI at edge, general AI and, and HPC, uh like any technology is considered as enabler and as a threat. Uh, how do you see humanity maintaining this healthy balance of benefiting while preventing misuse? And is there any opportunity for international organization of any kind to help uh, move this forward? Yeah, you know, the AI space is exciting and scary, right? And, and in some sense, everything that's exciting probably is a little scary, right? Uh, and so I think that uh, it is important for us to have transparency. So one of the biggest things that we can do, even in this edge computing and AI space, 
is be completely transparent in what's running at the edge. And right now for, for exactly for our project, um, we have an edge code repository uh, where all of the codes that will run at the edge, whether it's wildfire detection or flood or pedestrian counting or uh, looking for birds or processing for uh, uh, um, uh, bat species to understand the vocalizations. For our project, all of that code is open source and inspectable and the training sets will be open, open and inspectable. And I think that you know, we're coming to a point for AI where people will want some accountability uh, and coming up with standards and being able to describe where did you get that model? You know, you're using a model. Uh, and if you think about just even from the legal ramifications, uh, you know, in the future, uh, radiology at hospitals will be dominated by AI models that look at you know, MRIs that look at CAT scans and determine, you know, is there a tumor? Is there something to worry about? And we will want to have really good understanding of where that data came from that generated that model. Uh, and so I think that we'll have to struggle with this in the open science community of how to make that data available, how to uh, understand where those models came from and how to share that. And I think international, uh, 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 consideration and discussion would be very important in this space. We usually end these interviews, which by the way, were extremely insightful, uh, more on a personal note. Uh, you've been living in Chicago area for quite some time and, and, and even studying that area. How is it uh, to live in, in Chicago? Tell us some interesting perspectives there. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is a, a uh, I live in a suburb here and uh, it is, a, uh, uh, a, a wonderful place. I'm looking out the window now. It snowed this morning and it's all white outside. So that's one part of Chicago you have to uh, uh, be okay with. Um, but for, uh, for me, uh, being outside is pretty important. So I spend a lot of time uh, uh, either planning trips or going on trips. Uh, and uh, whether that's kayaking or canoeing or backpacking or uh, 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 riding a bike uh, and touring, some sort of trip is, uh, you know, the suburbs are nice here, but uh, I like to be outside. So uh, that's what I look for. So that's how you wind down. Yes. Uh, and uh, my wife and I have uh, 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 enjoyed, uh, you know, Canada and South America and Europe and uh, Australia. And we take uh, as many opportunities as possible to get outside and, and see things. Interesting. Uh, and, and we're all different, um, which brings us to the question of inclusion and diversity. It is a very important angle that everyone discusses nowadays for good reason. How do you see it? Yeah, I, so um, uh, I, thanks for asking that. It is extremely important in our community that we uh, um, work hard, <laughs> you know, that we, we work to build both a, a team uh, uh, dynamics that listens to everybody and uh, pulls people in who have different experiences. Um, so one of the things that, that can help with that is to realize that when we're interviewing people and when we're looking for students, that uh, all of the kinds of experiences they have add to the, the character and the, uh, uh, the enjoyment of the team. And so uh, it's great to have 
uh, uh, to recruit students from uh, a diverse set of backgrounds. Uh, this, you know, every summer, I don't know if you've been able to see the web pages uh, that show some of the team pictures. Uh, we have students from all over. Uh, it is fantastic. Uh, and it, it makes for, a, you know, both a fun time working on problems, but also different uh, perspectives. Um, but I think that how we listen is a big part of that. Uh, you know, we have a certain culture in how we walk up to a whiteboard and draw pictures and attack a problem. And there are many different ways to attack and solve science problems. And sometimes we have to step back uh, and to be more inclusive, we have to step back and listen in a different way. Um, and finally, I would say, uh, um, you know, getting people excited about STEM, excited about science in the, at the earliest in high school uh, is key. We've already in our projects have had several uh, high school students who volunteer since we couldn't hire them. They were too young who kind of volunteer for summer uh, just to learn. And I think the more scientists in our community can take on getting people excited about uh, science and technology, uh, the more diverse uh, um, employment workforce we'll have. Thank you, Pete. Great insights. I learned a lot and, and I'm sure our audience has as well. Well, thanks uh, for the opportunity. It has been a lot of fun. Um, uh, I, your questions were insightful and also make me think, oh yeah, that's a great research problem we should maybe be thinking more about. So I appreciate the opportunity from, uh, uh, from our friends. It was our pleasure.